back in the day, or back 10 years ago, it was a very rough neighborhood, rough, very rough neighborhood. And essentially, you know, I figured if, if they, if I could open a place that was sort of inviting and welcoming to everyone in the community, I would have a better shot at succeeding. That's about as much as I knew. And that's been our ethos to this day. You know, everyone is welcome, regardless of your age or where you live or what kind of cuisine you like, what kind of, li- you know, everyone's welcome. Everyone can come in. Welcome to The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods, the nation's first podcast devoted to the restaurant industry. Now, here's your host, Wilco Foods CEO, Stephen Toberoff. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Profitable Table, fed by Wilco Foods. I'm your host, Stephen Toberoff, and today my guest is someone that we've had the honor to do business with for a long time. And I was actually on their website last week and I was on again today before our interview and the food looks amazing and I know the person's amazing and uh, I'm just so grateful that you took the time to come and talk with me today, uh, even though it's on the phone. Serration Pather, thank you, Serration, for taking the time for this interview today. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for reaching out. Appreciate it. And the restaurant is The Black Swan, which has been a seven-year-in-a-row Michelin recommendation spot. It's at 1048 Bedford Avenue in Brooklyn, and it is a gastropub. And um, Serration, I have a lot of questions, but before we get into it, would you please tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the restaurant business? Sure. Um, I was actually, funny enough, I was actually an aquarium installer for 20 odd years. That's what I did from the age of about 22 till my 40s. I would go to celebrities' homes and I had, had a couple of stores in New York City. And that's what I did. At a certain point, I kind of got tired of that business and burnt out a bit. And my wife and I had moved to a Brooklyn neighborhood from Manhattan as our kids were starting to get bigger. And there were no restaurants or anything in this neighborhood. The neighborhood had been in decline for years. So we took our chances. And just one day I said, hey, you know, I'm going to open a restaurant here. I, I really, I'd never worked in a restaurant. I'd never worked in a bar. I had no experience. It was just a, a dumb idea, I guess. But uh, I had to educate myself very quickly. Hired some good people and uh, learned as quickly as I could. And that's it. Just took it from there. That's amazing. You know, my dad, when he finally built out his sort of dream apartment when he was in his sort of 50s, the centerpiece of it was this really nice aquarium that he had. And that was one of his great pleasures was to sit there at night and relax. And I know that he had people in there at least once a week, sometimes more, and people get super into it. In fact, we actually have, you know, something very primitive at home, but um, that just brought back, you know, just a goldfish tank that we got for the kids because we're trying to avoid getting a dog, but it brought back a really nice memory for me. Your story reminds me also of an earlier interview we had with a couple of guests from Sugar Sweet Sunshine, which were also people who came from a totally different background and had a just an interest in a dream of opening a bakery. And like you, they opened up in a great location and they have built something that is really now an integral part of the neighborhood and is really like an institution. Now, when you decided to open your restaurant, Serration. You mentioned about the neighborhood and how that gave you some some inspiration or motivated you. 
What motivated you in terms of selecting the type of cuisine you did? Because as I mentioned earlier, it's a gastropub. What motivated you to do that type of cuisine versus some other form? I grew up in, in London and the pub scene or the pub environment, which doesn't necessarily cater to a particular group of people or ethnicity or it, it's just a meeting place for the neighborhood. So I like that concept and that idea. And like I said, there was there was nothing in the neighborhood. We're in Bedford Stuyvesant, New York. Uh, Bedford Stuyvesant, Brooklyn. What year was it again when you opened? We opened in 2010. Okay. And there was absolutely nothing here. I mean, there's a couple of dozen amazing restaurants now, 10 years later, all around us. And essentially, you can't buy a home here for less than 2 million bucks. But back in the day, well, back 10 years ago, it was a very rough neighborhood, rough, very rough neighborhood. And essentially, you know, I figured if, if they, if I could open a place that was sort of inviting and welcoming to everyone in the community, I would have a better shot at succeeding. That's about as much as I knew. And that's been our ethos to this day. You know, everyone is welcome, regardless of your age or where you live or what kind of cuisine you like, what kind of, you know, everyone's welcome. Everyone can come in. Um, we have a great soccer watching crowd, great food. We take a lot of pride in making sure that every guest who comes in is happy, satisfied, and wants to come again. Mm. It really comes through in your website. What I find a lot having been in this business for a while myself, is those restaurants that are really sort of geared up to catering to the neighborhood first are the ones that have a real longevity to them. And I could think of a lot of restaurants, and I think it would be fair to say the Black Swan as well. Well, before I even give my point, when you opened up and you've explained the thinking behind that, now 10 years later, what percentage, roughly, would you say of your clientele are people from the neighborhood that are regulars or who live there and are popping in versus people who come to the Black Swan as a destination spot? Because getting the phenomenal reviews that you have, I'm sure there are foodies from outside of the neighborhood that are also coming to check you out. As far as the regulars are concerned, a lot of them aren't here anymore. Essentially, what's happened in the neighborhood, they've gotten priced out. So that guy that would come in several nights a week and stuff like that, there's not so many of those guys anymore. Again, like I said, if, you, if you're going to buy a home for two million bucks, essentially that person is probably working in Manhattan, happy hours in Manhattan, comes home, probably has a wife, couple of kids, is not the kind of guy maybe who's going to go out regularly. So it's a different clientele these days. But I would say a solid 70% of the people who come in are still neighborhood people. You know, we get a lot of people who read about us, a lot of people who check out our website, a lot of referrals from our regulars and stuff like that. We have quite a few celebrities who come in quite often into the restaurant to check us out. So, so yeah, I would say about 60, 70%, I would say. I know their faces because they come in quite often. And what you're mentioning is actually something that, in a sense, might seem counterintuitive, but it's a similar dynamic that happens to a lot of restaurants, which is there's almost a knee-jerk reaction where people would think to themselves, well, as a neighborhood becomes more expensive, which is a reflection of, of there being greater demand to live there, it automatically means that it's going to be beneficial for the businesses that are there. And in some cases, it can be, but I'm reminded of an, another interview I did with... Um, Jason Burchard of Veselka, and they've been in the East Village for so long, 
And a lot of the changes that have gone on there, you know, they're very active in the community. They believe are really not the best for preserving sort of what made the East Village the East Village. And I think that that's a fascinating sort of dynamic that occurs where you have restaurants, you were really a visionary opening there, and you've now had to navigate a second challenge, which you've done exceptionally well, which is having your restaurant continue to be a destination spot and a sought-after spot, even as the clientele who may have been the ones who frequented your establishment early on are now being replaced with new homeowners and new people to the neighborhood. You know, when you cater to your regular and the local, no matter how trendy life gets and weirdness comes about the drops in your lap, your, your locals and your regulars will always show up. And they're the ones that will keep your business going. As far as there being a lot of other restaurants there, like I said, there's a couple of dozen great restaurants now. And they were zero when we opened. But then to me, that keeps you on your toes. You know, you have to keep thinking. You have to keep offering new things you have to keep make sure that your service is up to par that your bartenders are great your servers are great your food's great so it keeps us on our toes because there's a lot of options and i think when you have a lot of options like that the winner ultimately is the consumer and there's no problem with that i have no issues with that i think that's a great point and i think that i think that's a great way to look at it i think a lot of times people can you know restaurants any business when you have that level of competition, you you can't get complacent. And I also appreciate what you're saying in terms of, and we've discussed this before, you know, focusing on every aspect of the customer's experience, which, you know, I think the interactions with the staff is probably the most important because people will forgive a bad cocktail or meal. But if they have a bad experience with the people that they're interacting with, it can be a challenge. But at the same time, what I like about your menu a lot, just for someone like myself, because I just love the selections that you have where, yes, it's traditional gastro pub food, but you can also see that there's something on there for everyone. And I think it lends itself to people coming in there, whether they want to watch a soccer game or do something else. Something that I, I'm very curious about, Seration, because one of the reasons I started this podcast was there's a lot of content out there for people that are foodies and about recipes and different types of cuisine. But I wanted this podcast to have a somewhat of a focus on what it takes to be successful from the business side of things, because this is, as you know, a very challenging business and a lot of people get into it and they might be the finest chefs or have the greatest palate in the world. But if you overlook the business side of things, it creates challenges. Are there lessons you learned or just you know business thoughts in general that you carried over into the restaurant business from what you were doing prior to this with aquariums, because I think it is a business and I'm just fascinated by somebody that does a 180 and comes into this. What lessons from a business standpoint or disciplines did you bring with you from, from that prior career into the restaurant business, if any, and, and how has it served you? You know, in my previous business, which is the aquarium business, you're dealing with livestock and essentially it dies if you don't take care of it. So it's very hard work. I came into the restaurant business. I think that attitude really helped me. Um, I think when a novice thinks of the restaurant industry, the business, owning a restaurant, it's a very glamorous sounding industry. I guess it can be, but it's essentially it's not. You know, it's hard working. It's constant. You're putting fires out constantly. But then you know, the, the margins, the financial, the, the money, I mean, it's, Right. If you have a slow week or two, it's going to take you 
another three weeks to catch up with that week. So the glamour, it's more hype than anything. So I came into this business, a business where for 20 years, I had to work hard every single day. I had to work seven days a week, 12 hours a day. I had to do it. There was no two ways about it. So I think I see a lot of people coming into this business thinking it's very nine to five. And then perhaps you sit at the bar and you hang out with the locals and then you go home. It's not that way. When the dishwasher doesn't show up, it might be the owner who's hopping back there and washing the dishes. You know, you have to come into this industry, I think, with that sort of mentality, ready to roll your sleeves up and work hard. I think that that's so true. And I think it's something that is very important for our listeners who are aspiring to one day open their own restaurant or bar to, to really sort of embrace. You can love every aspect of this business, but it is one that requires hard work and consistency and diligence. And to succeed as long as you have and to do what you've done, there's no way it gets done without somebody having that level of attention. And it's a common theme that I see running through everybody that I speak with. Like you say, there can be a glamorous aspect to it for sure. And there's a lot of different components. I mean, food is art and there's a level of artistry. But at the end of the day, like any other business, you have to do what you have to do to ensure that you're getting the job done, maximizing uh your margins, handling those challenges that come your way. And I, I think that's so important. You know, I think television has kind of had a big role to play in that. It seems, you know, everyone's a food expert now because of television, because of the celebrity chefs, because of, you know, Gordon Ramsay and whatnot. But those guys will probably be the first to tell you that they slept on the kitchen floor night after night when they first started out. So, you know, it's not, there's very few guys that make it to sort of that level of glamour. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And I've seen, sadly, I've seen and we've done business with people who come into this space who have one top chef or come in second place or that have a phenomenal pedigree from the culinary standpoint. But for whatever reason, the failure to execute from a business side, you, you just cannot overcome that. I think that's just something so important to underscore. Now, something we were discussing before we went on the air, obviously this is an exciting week as things continue to open up in the New York, New Jersey area, but from the beginning of the pandemic, you have been open and you've been doing takeout and delivery. Now, my first question is, was takeout and delivery a big part of what you were doing prior to this, or was it any part? And then my second question would dovetail on that, is how has the preparation of food and just the overall the, the overall challenges associated with accommodating takeout and delivery perhaps helped make the cuisine better or different or what sort of innovations has it led to? Two years ago, I, I came to the realization that at least the community that I'm living in, we're living very much in an Amazon style environment now, where if you want anything you have to be equipped and ready to go to bring it to someone's home. I realized this two years ago. If you want food, you need to be able to bring it to someone's home. Toiletries, bring it to their home. We're seeing all the big retailers doing it. You see McDonald's. You want McDonald's? McDonald's will bring it to your home now. Who would have thought that five years ago or 10 years ago? But I saw that a couple of years ago. I mean, if you want a date, you can go on your computer at home and you can look for a date on Match.com or whatever. So I saw this being a trend. And a couple of years ago, I got heavily into the delivery business. I'm on all the 
platforms, Uber Eats, Grubhub, Postmates. I'm on all of them and I have been for many years. And what I was noticing is in, obviously it cuts tremendously into your profits because there's just so much. I don't mark my food up to a different price on the online ordering, but you have to use a lot of these third-party apps, you know, Grubhub and stuff, and they take up to 30% of your revenue. So you have to really move a lot of volume. And before the pandemic, we were doing about about 30% of our food sales were online. So we were sort of already set up and ready to go. We weren't running around aimlessly trying to figure it out. We were sort of ready to go. Um, I, you know, another company that I saw that was doing this was Walmart. I have a home up in the country, you know, upstate New York. And on the way driving up, we'd stop at a Walmart and pick up a few supplies and head to the house. They were setting up system of where you order on your phone, pull up outside, you press the button on the app saying you're there, and they bring your groceries out. And they were super ready to try for, for the pandemic. For shutting down, they were ready. They had all their systems in place. I think we did the same thing. Uh, I hope I was clear on that. I didn't ramble too much. But. No, that was, that's, that, was, that was very clear. And actually, I have some more questions about that afterwards. But let me ask you this question. I, with the pandemic and the um, greater utilization of the online delivery apps, has it led you to make any changes to the menu or anything different? Like I know certain places, and these tend to be ones that were not as sort of far-seeing as you were, and they were not prepared, so they sort of just got into this as the pandemic hit, but they created family-style meals or they did other things. Have you found that you've made any changes to either offerings or or anything related to the menu during these past few months? I think because we had a couple of years of people regularly ordering from us, certain favorites that we offer, I said to myself, you know, we made a list of certain expensive items, like your steak item or whatnot, that maybe we would cut off the menu if to save on expenses. But the fact of the matter is everything sold on the menu, top to bottom. There was no that didn't move. Interesting. Now, one of the subjects that I discussed with a friend of mine who is in Jersey City as well, he owns a place called Ghost Truck Kitchen, which just does takeout and delivery. There's no in-room dining there, is there's been a big push on his part, and he seems to have gotten some support even here locally in Jersey City to try and get rid of the middleman. In this case, it could be Grubhub, Postmates, and Uber, and encourage people to order directly from the restaurant. And I know that the New York City Council has passed some things to really try to rein in the fees on the part of those third-party apps. But has there been any type of movement that you're aware of in New York or Brooklyn to really try to encourage the, the consumer to be ordering directly, as I used to when I was a kid? From the restaurant? All restaurants hate the third-party apps. They, we all do. Just because they just take so much money from us. It's so unregulated. But the fact of the matter is they really have a very strong foothold in the delivery business. 90% of the kids who are going to order or people who are going to order are going to go immediately to crop pub or caviar or Uber Eats, 90%. The only really good thing about them is, well, you're going to get a wider reach of people, but they ensure you get your money for the most part. So that's one less thing you have to really worry about is that, you know, your money gets, you know, deposited where your guys are going. There's some, some accountability as, to, as far as the safety of your delivery guys. But it's the kind of thing I've, I've given a lot of thought to and I've spoken 
about this to a lot of my restaurant owning friends. Where do you start with that? You know, it's where do you even begin to get that movement together? I'm fairly sure that using the platforms, I mean, delivery business would be substantially less. I agree with you. I think that the platforms are kind of a double-edged sword. I think that they can be terrific in a lot of circumstances. I think, you know, most particularly, I can think of a lot of restaurants that had never thought of doing delivery and would never do delivery because they just were never equipped for it. They didn't think it was something they'd want to do. But now you have a third party that's willing to take on essentially all of the costs associated with it. And so if you're layering on an additional revenue stream on top of what's already satisfactory, yes, you are having a substantial amount of your margins taken by them, but you're also saving a lot. So I, I, I get your point. I would say I think that there's going to probably be something coming out. I think, one, it's good that the city council has gone to bat for the independent restaurants, because I, I agree with you. I think the third-party companies have gotten very um, aggressive, and I think some of their practices has been reported or are really not consistent with the type of treatment that I think the restaurants deserve. But I'm hopeful that there'll be even more changes down the pike that are beneficial to the restaurant owners, because ultimately that's what the customers want to engage in. They utilize the app to get there, but it's really the restaurants that are the end user. Absolutely. And I tell you, when I discuss with customers how much we have to pay for third-party apps, the customers are shocked. They always say to me, well, you know, is it better if I call you then? I'm, I'm so shocked that I'm giving that 30% of the money I'm paying is going to them. That, like, they, they have no idea about that. Uh, but there has been legislation that during the virus now, they're only allowed to take a certain percentage, which is great. You know, and I understand everyone has to make some money, but they really, I mean, their foot is very firmly on the throat of a lot of restaurants. The fact of the matter is people don't go out anymore. For a birthday, for an anniversary, something like that, yeah, people will go out. But for the most part, people are very comfortable um, to order some food and watch Netflix now. That's sort of the new norm, in big cities at least, I'm figuring. You know what I think is another trend that I'm seeing here in Jersey City? We, we, we were in Manhattan until um, 2004, and then we moved to Jersey City. And Jersey City is similar to Brooklyn in that it's got a real neighborhood feel to it, and there's a lot going on. It's like Brooklyn, but maybe 10 years behind, if you will, in terms of Fortunately, there's still tons of independent restaurants. There's not a chain bank on every corner. There's not all of that sort of development by large chains that can take away some of the charm of the city. But one of the trends that I, I feel can be very beneficial to a lot of different restaurants is the whole takeout theme, because I agree with you 100%. People, or a lot of people anyway, are more comfortable eating at home and enjoying that experience. But people also like to get out of their house to walk their dog, have a smoke, see what's going on. And I think more restaurants are going to start making the takeout offering something a little bit more attractive and more widespread. And if it can be done and eliminate the third-party delivery apps, it'll dramatically enhance margins. Do you find that you do much in takeout or would you say that the lion's share is people that just want it delivered to their homes? People want it delivered to their homes. You know, when you see Burger King and Kentucky Fried Chicken saying, hey, now we'll bring it Taco Bell. We'll bring it to your home now. When you see these guys doing it, which has been in the last 12 months, I think, you know, that they've really, yeah, I mean, people want you to bring 
stuff to their homes now. You know, people don't want to venture out. And, you know, a lot of the young kids, I have young kids too. I mean, a great Friday night for my son is being on the headset with his buddies playing the video game. I don't really understand. Yeah, I don't, I don't really understand it. You know, when I was his age, I'd be out and see my friends and interacting. But, you know, it's just showing my age. It's uh, No, it's funny. I have kids as well, and my two boys especially they've been sort of sailing through this pandemic because they're engaging with their friends as they were prior to this through Fortnite and other games where they're on the headset, so I can relate to you. But all of that being said, I I think something may happen on the other side of this where people are going to want to go back outside, because I think humans are social by nature. And I would say this, I know speaking for myself and even people I've spoken with, I'm a homebody and an introvert to begin with, so I, I love being at home. But too much of a good thing is too much of a good thing. And I think these past three months have been just exactly too much of staying home. So what I think may happen, I'm curious to your thoughts, is maybe when this thing, and it's even, you know, slowly, slowly starting now, but people do want to get back out there and be more social. Maybe there'll be some sort of counter trend activity, at least for a period of time, where people have seen enough of their home and enough of being stuck in and maybe they'll want to get out there in this, uh, in this industry uh, in this business the last thing that we like as, as restaurant owners is the unknown because the unknown is a potential for lost revenue with when when you're dealing with the unknown there's a lot of money that needs to be made in order to cover the expenses of this business so we don't know i think there's going to be a big bounce when we reopen because yes people have been stuck indoors for a long time people will want to go out people will want to come to the bar come to the restaurant be out in the street whatever but i think that we're creatures of comfort and the whole what i call the amazon lifestyle is i think very much ingrained in how we're going to move forward don't forget too there are a lot of offices that are not going to reopen that are going to say Hey, stay at home and work remotely. Use Zoom, that kind of stuff. Now you're not even going to work. Now you're staying, now you're working from your home as well. So that makes me think there will be an initial bounce of people wanting to go outside and enjoy the nice weather and enjoy restaurants again. But I think everyone's going to slip back into the old habit of having everything just brought directly to them. Something that I was reading about in the papers over the past few days is that on, I believe the date is June 27th, right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, Suration, restaurants and bars are able to serve alcohol to go. And many people are very much, and I I certainly can understand it, would like that to continue. What are your thoughts on the impact on just the pubs and just New York City and restaurants in general of the ability to serve cocktails and other alcoholic beverages to go. Do you view that as a net positive? Is it something you'd like to see continue? I'd be curious to know your thoughts on that. A hundred percent net positive. I think it's a great thing. I can understand the concern. You don't want puking in the corner outside your home and stuff. I understand that. But I think in a great city like New York, you know, being able to have a cocktail or a beer, a closed container, strolling the streets, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think it adds a bit of romance to the city, especially in the summer and stuff like that. I think it would be a really nice thing. I completely agree with you. I think that one of the things that, I, that I'm that i hoping can come out of this, and I think if hopefully the elected officials get behind it, would be to, you know, as you say, New York has always been an international city. But when you go to Europe, 
you can have an alcoholic beverage on the street and a, a cocktail. Uh, there's the tremendous cafe lifestyle of Paris and Vienna and other cities. And I think it would be wonderful if we could sort of use what's going on now as an opportunity to introduce some of that into New York, where for places that do or don't have outdoor dining, just to have more of a streetscape nightlife. And then I completely agree with you. I think it's you want everybody to be adults, et cetera, et cetera. But I think it would add a level of charm and, and sophistication I think would be good for everybody. And I hope it's something that they consider making a permanent fixture or perhaps make it seasonal. But something permanent about that, I think, would be very much a net positive for the hospitality industry. Absolutely. I think the emphasis, if the city does decide to do it, would be a big campaign emphasizing that you need to do this responsibly. That if you're going to have a cocktail and stroll the streets, you're throwing your container away. You're definitely policing yourself and your behavior. And let's all enjoy this. And that we'd probably reevaluate the situation in a year's time. And if there's just too many incidents, it's not going to continue. Maybe, maybe along those lines. Yeah, like I said, it's, it's, it's probably great for a guy to be a couple to be able to take a couple of beers to the park and sit there and relax and enjoy a nice day and then throw their trash away and go home. I think it's a nice thing. I agree with you. And I hope that they use this opportunity because it's been a very challenging time for sure. But I think out of challenging times can come a new beginning or can come insights that one or even collectively we wouldn't have thought of before that. And I think really dialing in on the hospitality industry, one of the things that I've been so proud of to be a part of this industry, and you're a tremendous manifestation of it, is the level of resiliency, positivity, and creativity. And I, I sincerely hope, and I really do, that that elected officials and others have seen that as well, and really make it a priority to work with those in the hospitality industry. Because the streetscape of New York City is what made New York a great city. And I think pre-pandemic, with a lot of these very expensive shopping malls and indoor facilities that accommodated a number of activities, including uh, dining and cuisine, we were losing that. And I think if we can really focus back on what makes New York a great city and a great vibrant streetscape and, and city life, I, I think that's something we were at risk of losing. And I hope now we can sort of at least, not, not losing, but it was changing in a manner that I think perhaps we can use this as an opportunity to bring it back as something much more vibrant and engaging. Yeah, I think you're right. I haven't even thought of it that way, but I think that might be a very powerful step in making people come out again and be a bit less reliant on people bringing their essentials to them. Maybe people will go out now, you know, buy a cocktail, and I'll head over to the to the drugstore, and I'll meet up with a friend in the park. So yeah, I think that would go a long way. I was born and raised in New York City, and so I remember growing up, and even into my 20s and, and coming back in my 30s, one of the great things about being in New York was, again, you're, you're on the streets, there's the people watching, there's the energy of it. And then a lot of times, you know, I've been to certain of these very um, well-publicized creations, such as uh, Hudson Yards or uh, the Time Warner Building. And I'm not critiquing or in any way denigrating them. I see the charm and the value for people who enjoy it. But that's like a shopping mall, which we have lots of in New Jersey and other suburbs. But what I think New York has to offer is kind of what we've been discussing. Hopefully they move in that direction. One thought that I had that I would like to, to, to sort of get your opinion on is, as we continue to open up day by day and move forward day by day, 
Do you feel that because people were at home and sort of the Amazon lifestyle, as you were describing it, do you feel that it gave you an opportunity to get people to try Black Swan who may not have before? Because you'd mentioned there are a number of restaurants that have opened. But I've spoken to people who said, you know what, it's really been people that have been ordering forever. Others say, you know what, as everyone's ordering at home more, they want to be adventurous. For for many months, it was the only real exciting something new to do. I mean, there's no sports, there's no new entertainment, where they're going to get takeout from. Do you think it's given you an opportunity to introduce the Black Swan to people who may not have been familiar with it before? Yeah, a lot of new faces to ordering food from us. Uh, I did in the beginning, especially sort of end of March, all the way through April, I was doing a lot of social media push. You know, you pay pay a certain amount and they'll push an ad out for you. I was doing a lot of that, all social media, really. And yeah, did get a bounce and a lot of questions and people emailing us saying, hey, I saw an ad on social media. What hours are you delivering? And will you deliver to me? And if I order some food, can I just come by and pick up? So we were getting a lot of inquiries. So it did help. And I think, yeah, maybe a lot of those people, hopefully at least, are going to say, it gave us an opportunity to advertise what we do when we're open. So hopefully a lot of those people are going to make a trip out once, you know, we're all cleared to open up and yeah, come by. I think it will, because one of the trends that was going on that I saw very clearly, and I had spoken about also in an earlier podcast, is there was really a trend going on. And maybe you saw it at the Black Swan, you'd mentioned that, you know, the televised soccer games were one of the things that your customers enjoy coming. But collectively watching events in bars and beer gardens was a trend that was really going on before this. So they were having, bars were uh, highlighting, come in tonight and watch uh, the Democratic debate, come in tonight and watch this episode of a certain TV show that's on Netflix. I think that that's something that could really also take off. And I, I really believe that being positioned as you are, where you already have a core soccer fan, I think people really miss sports. And I think that watching those things, as well as the other things I mentioned with others, is something you can't replicate at home. And I think that's going to be a big positive as well. Yeah, absolutely. We paid our dues when it comes to that. We've shown World Cup matches at 4.30 in the morning. You've got, you've got to do that. We've, you know, on the weekend, we open at 7 a.m. to show the Premier League, the English Soccer League. Whether there's zero people there or one person or 10 people or 50 people, we open. And you've got to put your, you've got to pay your dues and do that. You know, we've done that for years. So people, and after you do that for years, then people know that, okay, there's the Democratic debate, there's the election results, there's the Academy Awards, there's the World Cup. Then they know you guys in the neighborhood as the place that will always show that stuff. And that took years to do. I mean, that took years for us to do. And it's difficult, difficult. And you got to convince some kid to be behind the bar to come in an hour at 3.30 in the morning and set the bar up. And maybe there's going to be two people there. You got to convince that guy that, hey, I need you to do this for me. You know, So it's, it's been tough. It's been really difficult to do that. But we've been doing that for years. And there's a lot of factors that are up against us with that. You know, you can watch all the NFL now, for instance, at home on your phone if you want to. In the old days, you could never do that. You could never watch Premier League soccer on your phone or on your TV or on your iPad. You had to go to a bar that had a special cable thing and watched it there. Now, you guys are going to come out for the big one, big rivalries, the, the teams that get the big support in New York City. Guys are going to come out for that, but there's a lot of options now. Serration, this was really a fascinating interview. And I think for those of you that are listening, 
that are interested in opening a bar or restaurant, I think it would be worth really listening to it again and, and thinking about because all of the themes that you've touched on, your ability to anticipate um, the vision of opening up where you did, what we were just discussing with communal events, everything, it's, it's so important. And um, for those of you, I know we have a number of listeners that are not from the New York area. If you are coming to the New York region from overseas or another part of America, I would highly recommend that you go and visit the Black Swan because not only are you going to be going to a, a phenomenal gastro pub that's been so well uh, reviewed, but I think the overall vibe in Bed-Stuy in Brooklyn is one. A lot of times people come to New York City, and I've been guilty of this as well. You go to a very famous place, and you really only see the part that's the most touristy. And when you really want to experience any major city or any place in the world, it's always good to get out beyond that original hub. And this would be a great place to do it. If you want to check them out, you can go to their website, which is theblackswan.com. They have a phenomenal Instagram presence. Go to BlackSwanBK. And Serration, I, I have to also say that I've been doing this a while, but you're a customer that we really value and treasure and, and every aspect of the relationship and everyone within our organization has such a respect for you. And it's a testimonial to how you run your business. And I, I really thank you for taking the time to speak with me today. My pleasure. And uh, I just want to say, you know, it's been a pleasure doing business with you guys over all, this, all these years. You guys are nothing but consummate professionals every time. Thank you, Serration. Well, you know, God willing, we'll open up uh, safely, but sooner rather than later. And I look forward to coming down and, and seeing you at the Black Swan and, and have a great day. All the best. Thank you. Thanks. That was a very, very enjoyable interview, and um, Serration is somebody that I have enormous respect for because of the way he approaches this business, and I learned a lot from that interview, and I'm sure all of you did as well. Today, I want to recommend a book that came out of a conversation that I had via email with one of our listeners who we were going back and forth about different writers and, and different books and what have you. And a book that was recommended to me, and I think the timing is really good because they just announced that we'll have a Major League Baseball season this year, God willing, which I'm very excited for as a huge baseball fan. The book is called The Natural by Bernard Malamud. And I had read other works of that author and I had seen the movie, but the novel is incredible. And so I want to thank Chris for recommending it to me. I'll get back on the nonfiction trend maybe in our next uh, podcast, but I've been you know, reading a lot of fiction. This was a great recommendation for me, and I just want to share it with you. So please send me your questions, your comments, anything you have. You can email me at steven at woolcofoods.com. You can follow us on Instagram at woolcofoods and DM me there. Again, really appreciate all of the support and emails and DMs that I've been getting during this. You guys that are listening are tremendous sources of insight and at times inspiration, and I appreciate each and every one of you. So everybody have a great, great day and a great week, and I'll speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to The Profitable Table, fed by Woolco Foods. Please be sure to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. And to learn more about Woolco Foods or Stephen Toberoff, please visit us at woolcofoods.net. <laughs>